welcome to Developers Eating the World. And uh, you may have noticed my cadence on these has slowed down a little bit. I'm going to blame the holiday rush, but um, in actuality, it's because I have another podcast. So if you haven't queued into that yet, there's another podcast called Tech a Sketch on YouTube. So go and find that. That's with me and Ashton, and we have a really fun format. But that doesn't mean I've forgotten about you. This podcast is still very important to me. And today I am joined by Moshe, who uh, was one of the speakers at a recent event that I uh, was a part of called DevSecOps Days Rockies. And Moshe, why don't you just introduce yourself and uh, tell me a little bit about your background and we'll we'll kick it off. So my name is Moshe Zadka. I've been, been involved in like you know, various things around operating systems and open source software since I think 95 is when I installed my first Linux uh, operating system. Um, and I, I've been using Python since uh, 1999. I've been doing DevOps for a long time since before we have a word for it. So basically back then, uh, you mostly thought of it as a failed software engineer, right? You, you, you weren't like a full software engineer, but clearly someone needed to do all this stuff that mashes the software with the with the operating system in the right ways and eventually we just came up with a name for that which made me much happier you you made me look even worse because i referred to myself as a failed software engineer that's why i went into <laughs> advocacy but you went as a as what you say failed software engineer into another technical role so uh and, and, and devrel, devrel also right it's like you know like now that we have a term for that it's not a failed software engineer it's like a, a different job it's, it's official it's, yeah exactly, right like it needs its own specialty i uh when i worked for a company called cloudshare it was right right when devops was becoming a thing but our focus was in application lifecycle management and i used to say oh this is ridiculous why are we calling this thing devops which is just alm and now of course i'm i'm a huge fan your session at devsecops days was around uh, certificates and it was very uh, it was awesome i love content like that where it's deeply technical can you just kind of give a brief summary of what your talk was about? Sure. Um, I guess, uh, so I, I was kind of inspired by like the uh, title of the conference, right? It was like, this conference is called DevSecOps Days. And I want to do something that literally is DevSecOps, right? So what's DevSecOps, right? And 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 like, I, I guess my own bias is that like, there almost shouldn't be a word like Dev, DevSecOps, right? Because it's all DevOps, right? It's on DevQA Ops, so it's not DevSecQA Ops, right? The whole point of like the DevOps philosophy, if you will, is that, you know, everybody works together, you know, like, yes, originally it was about developers and operations working together, but the philosophy is, as it is, right? It's like everybody's working together to achieve something, right? Like to break down silos. And I was like, what's more breaking down the silos between DevSec and Ops? With then certificate management, right? Because developers have to worry about it because they have to make sure that the code properly validates certificates. Um, the security people have to worry about it because it's literally a solution that solves a security issue. And the ops people have to worry about it. And I guess this, this is where my twist came in because now there's a lot of more failure modes, right? Now instead of just like the, the old failure mode that, that we, we knew and loved, right? Like you can't connect or the connection is slow. You also have um, the certificate is not signed correctly. The certificate is not up to date. You know, the certificate is too new, right? Which also can, can cause problems, right? Like timing issues. There's like a whole bunch of like new and fun failure modes. And often when people think about like, you know, like how in late 2010s and, and 2020, right? Like we all moved to like TLS everywhere because we want to secure inside the data center. 
because often it's not really inside, right? Like the data center is sprawled across multiple uh, clouds. So uh, we want to have all of it secured. And, and, and once we think about it, right, we're like, okay, now that all these connections are secured, that's great. But do we have the proper ways to monitor them? Do we make sure that we understand the new failure modes and how are we monitoring the failure modes? So I'm no expert in certificates, but I mean, you peeled a lot of layers off of that onion. But one thing I know is that with some of the changes that have come in the Chrome browser and the more savvy user who is now paying attention to things like certificates and and then being valid, um, there is a lot more considerations. But I didn't realize that it went all the way from dev to operations. So that is a cool, cool connection or a thread that you weave there. Ten years ago, people were like putting a lot of emphasis on like that that part, right? The Chrome to the server part, right? Let's make sure that you know your local browser when it connects to say Facebook.com, and you know you give them a lot of personal information and like what you're doing with your life. At least that there's no intermediary in in the way you know kind of like reading what you're doing with your life, right? And that was kind of well understood like ten years ago, but lately I feel like you know like the last five years there's a lot of emphasis on on TLS inside the data center, which of course it's the same protocol. But it has different considerations, right? And and like so, one of those considerations is that like a best practice is, is that very frequent certificate rotation, which is where my talk came in, right? Like when you have that, when you have very a lot of short-lived certificates on every server, then it's not like the old days where you had the certificate for a year on say Facebook.com, and you know you had a year to worry about things, right? Now it's like um, forty-five days, right? Which is not a lot of time. And you have to rotate those certificates. And if you fail to rotate them, the failure mode is extremely funny, right? Like funny when you know it, not when it happens. Because what, what happens is that like, everything looks fine, right? It's like the walking off a cliff. Until you take the step that takes you off a cliff, you feel like you know, very secure on the ground. It's not like walking into a marsh where you start feeling slowing down, right? Every step except the last of walking off a cliff feels on a very strong ground, except the one that like, you know, drops you. Uh, and, and the same thing with the certificate uh, uh, validity, right? As long as the certificate has one second of, of validity, all the clients are like, hooray, it has one second of validity, I can connect. Once the certificate does not have one second of validity, all the clients stop trusting it. So it's a very, very different failure mode than the one we're used to in the networking world. And, um, I think this is something that a lot of people should be, you know, kind of concerned about as they're moving their stuff to uh, uh, TLS inside the data center. And they should have a plan, like how do I monitor that? How do I make sure that I get alerts when the rotation fails, when the uptake fails? Um, because a lot of things at times, these are, you know, kind of being driven by security team. And this is how it relates to DevSecOps, right? These things are driven by security teams, right? And the developers have to make sure that they properly uh, validate. And the ops people have to make sure that they properly monitor. And, and like all, everybody has to work together to make sure that this doesn't, you know, completely trash the, uh, the environment. Yeah, I actually didn't even think about that, the, the incident response side as it relates to certificates. I think that's interesting. So your session is up on YouTube. I'm gonna to link to it uh, in the description and uh, everybody go and take a listen to that. But I wanna roll back to kind of what we were saying about doing DevOps before DevOps was a word. And, and you mentioned about DevSecOps. I've talked a lot about on my podcast how some of these terminologies are weaponized and 
you know, sometimes it makes sense to have them. Sometimes it doesn't, but I, I want to kind of get a sense of you because your role is also a fairly relatively new role in the industry, site reliability engineer. I want to get a sense from you of how you feel all of these concepts have actually impacted what you do day in, day out. Has it really changed what you do? And if it has, like, what has changed? So, so there's two ways it changed what I do. And, and like my, my first gut reaction was, no, it didn't change anything about what I do. And in some sense, it's true. Like, you know, I remember in 2006, like before we had words like DevOps and, and, and uh, SRE, I was still doing like, you know, more or less what I'm doing now. But there's two differences. And, and, and one is that now I can get hired for that, which is a lot of fun because I used to have to basically sneak in, right? I, I basically was hired as a software engineer. But everybody quickly found out that even if they start me out on a, on a task of like product side, I'll dig into like, wait, but how do we actually deploy? And, and like, what happens when it fails? And eventually I'll, I'll forget all about doing the product stuff and do all the other stuff. And by the time people figured out that I wasn't doing any product work, um, they had all this stuff that I built, you know, for like managing and making sure it's reliable and all of that. And someone has to worry about it. And it might as well be Moshe uh, because he already knows it. Um, so, you know, uh, um, now we don't have to fail into this role. I can just get this role to begin with. And I don't have to kind of like convince people that like, you know, they still need an engineer, even if he's doing zero feature work on the products. So this is great. Like we can like, you know, you know, when I need to look for another job, I can check job listings for appropriate titles. And it doesn't matter if it's DevOps or three. And then know that this is a job where they're looking for like my kind of skill set and mindset. And the other thing is that, now that there are a whole bunch of us right, who call ourselves you know, DevOps or SRE engineers, we get to share best practices, right? Like, you know, like I did you know, in, the, in the talk I, I had at DevSecOps days, right? Where I talk about the problem I had and what solutions I had, and hopefully a lot of other SREs you know, right. kind of listened and figured out how to apply to their lives. And, you know, like people write blog posts, right? Obviously, don't just talks, right? In 2006, we didn't have any kind of DevOps or SRE theory. You know, you, you talked about incident management, just a concept that incident management is a thing that you need to think about that, you know, like does not end when the incident ends, but that you want to have a retrospective meeting or what sometimes people call postmortem. Or like, how should you think about alerting? What should you alert on? What is a good alert? What is a bad alert, right? Like you can intuitively say this is worse than this, but we didn't have any any kind of coherent you know, community consensus because we didn't have a community that wanted to reach a consensus, right? And even if now we disagree, at least we disagree about the important stuff, right? Like now that we say, you know, this, you know, like you should alert on that. And I say you should alert on that. We, we have a framework in which we can have that discussion. And, and that is super important. I like that. I, a lot of times I'll say I only adopt terms once I know that the problem space is big enough. And then I need a term to make conversations more efficient. And that to some degree is what you're saying is, is by having a grouping around an activity, you're able to, to collaborate with peers better. Digging more into kind of the SRE function and the nature of modern applications. And you mentioned, I'm very happy you said it, <laughs> incident management, incident response is a, is a thing unto itself. It is not, you know, just a, just a, like a period at the end of your production environments. It is a, it is an activity you have to consider. How do you find that 
like traditional network operations has transformed and what are you doing that might be different than the days of having a call down list and, you know, calling the right person related to an incident? So I, I guess, it's, so let's, let's start from the end, right? Nowadays, there's a lot of, a lot of emphasis putting up in like whatever, you know, kind of on-call tool you have, like figuring out how you can remove as many people from that step, right? How you can start by, you know, already paging the right person. And it's never going to be perfect, right? You're going to page someone and it might be that they dig in and see there's a problem. But um, at least like you don't, you know, kind of like default to say, oh, I'm going to page network operations and then I'm going to figure out which application engineer to, to page, right? You, you, you start by saying, you know, the job of, of network operations is to make sure that they export enough metrics so that the application engineers can have their own alerts set up and they're responsible for waking up in response to the alerts. I guess in general, like if 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 I kind of like want to kind of step step back and kind of like what is the underlying philosophy here, um, the way I best like it summarized, I, I don't remember where I read it, and, and I, I really should because uh, it's it's one of my favorite phrases. The job of of site reliability engineering is not to shoulder the operation load; it's to reduce the operation load. And and I think this is a really important concept, right? My job is not to take the page from uh, that that is an application having a problem, dig into their stuff and figure out where it went wrong. My job is to teach people. And and sometimes it does take, you know, kind of an intermediate time of like, you know, shouldering some of the load so I can understand the problem. But my goal is often to to teach classic software engineers how to build reliable systems, how to build good monitoring on them, how to wake up for the right stuff, how to make sure that their on-call rotation is not you know, atrocious, right? Like, like that, that is that is a lot of the job of site reliability engineering is actually kind of doing that kind of advocacy inside organizations of like telling people who come from a more traditional development background, here's how you build reliable tooling, right? And and not, I'm just going to be like, you know, your, your own call and I'll figure everything out at 2 a.m. I use the term stewardship a lot, but I, I really like how you describe it there because it is such a completely different mindset. So what is your feeling then about developers being on call for their code? So it, I think in general, that's probably the right approach in the sense of it, it kind of aligns, you know, kind of accountability, responsibility, and, and, and uh, um, decision-making power. Because this means that like the person who decides, you know, kind of like how well they should be testing that or like what is their you know, SLAs or the reliability is all inside, you know, the same group. And and this is why I, I don't like that term specifically, like developers should be on call for their stuff because what I think there should be alignment, right, between who makes the decisions and who is impacted by these decisions. And you can do it in all kinds of ways, right? Should the QA people be in charge of the on-call rotation because they can potentially approve the uh, the buggy applications? And, and the thing is, it's like, if we think of on-call in terms of punishment, this is a bad model to think in terms of, right? What we should think of, who is the right person to wake up at 2 a.m. and figure out what's going wrong? That, that's how we should, you know, put, put down alerts, right? So if the alert is because the application is misbehaving, the best person is someone who knows what the application is supposed to be doing, right? And if you end up embedding an SRE team inside the application team, sometimes it makes sense for them to take, you know, quite a bit of the on-call rotation. So I, I don't... Like this, like the reason I don't like that specific phrasing is because 
I, I often felt like people use it to kind of phrase uncle rotation as a punishment. Like you're punished at 2 a.m. because you did not uh, write your code well. And I feel like any kind of, well, like, you know, when we do retrospectives, right? Like the, um, the guideline is blameless retrospectives, right? We do not point fingers. We figure out what the process went wrong. If too many people wake up at 2 a.m., the way to fix it is not to punish the people who write the bad code by make, waking them up at 2 a.m. The way to fix it is to figure out the process, like what is wrong with our process that every week we have a 2 a.m. alarm. Is it that we're not writing enough tests? Is it that we're not monitoring well enough? Is it that we're like, you know, monitoring bad things and therefore wake up for no good reason, right? Um, the way to fix it is to, to improve the situation. Um, the, but the person who should be waking up at 2 a.m. is the person in, in the best you know, place to fix a problem. Do you use the term resilience, which uh, I recently did a blog post that led into a, a podcast that I got schooled on the definition of resilience engineering, but it's such a common term now in software development. It's coming up a lot. Just curious, what does resilience mean to you? And, and or maybe more so what you said about building more resilient um, processes and systems. Yes, when you talk about resilience, you should first think about what you're trying to optimize for. Making sure that you have the right goal is even more important than you know how to reach it because, you know, that's a prerequisite. If you, you know, uh, like the cat in Alice in Wonderland, right? If you, if you don't know where you're going, you don't have any, any chance of getting there, right? So what is your goal? And, and you can have all kinds of goals, right? So uptime, you know, number of nines is, is a perfectly legitimate goal, right? Or customer satisfaction is a perfectly legitimate goal. And in, in, employee satisfaction is, a, is a, an important goal, right? Like we probably don't want to burn out our employees by making sure that all their time is spent firefighting. So first you need to, you know, me, like have goals, right? Like, you know, ideally measured by KPIs. Uh, um, one of my favorite KPIs at Square was that we uh, actually had two different uh, uh, measurements. One was number of pages, and the other was number of pages of business hours. Because if you think about it, getting a page during a business hour, sure, you know, it's not fun. You're probably doing something else, but you're anyway at work, right? Like, yes, you're, you're going to have to shift to, like, you know, figuring out what went wrong. But it's a much more pleasant uh, situation, right? And, and everybody's already there at work, right? So you can reach out to whatever team you have. Uh, it's, it's much better than getting a page at 4 a.m. So the idea was let's track them as separate metrics because one of our goals is that if you know you're doing something risky, you should try to do that risky thing in, in like time that is kind of like nice business hours so that other people can, you know, kind of jump in and you don't wake up any, anyone at night, right? So this is just, I'm not saying that everybody should have that goal. I'm just saying like first you should figure out what your goals are, right? And resilience usually stands for like this kind of, Vague, vague cloud of goals, and it's okay to talk about it in the abstract when we talk about you know good DevOps practices optimized for resilience. This is a good phrase in the abstract, but if you're running a specific company with specific employees in, in specific teams working on specific products, those should have very specific goals, right? We want to have less than this number of alerts. We want to have less than this number of alerts off of business hours. Only then can you measure these things, and then. You know, again, like no, nobody should ever be punished, right? Like if we did something wrong and we got more alerts than we planned for, let's sit down, figure out what we could have done better and improve that. 
and I, I'm glad you said KPIs. Um, one of the areas that I've been really fascinated in and focusing a lot on um, on my job uh, currently is around this idea of pipeline analytics. And um, you mentioned some of the metric. You know, I've heard other metrics: mean time to recovery, mean time to value. Um, uh, amount of unplanned work, I, I think, is very interesting. I know context switching in particular is very, very difficult for me. What are your thoughts on the idea of pipeline analytics and things like flow metrics, Dora metrics, um, if you've heard of any of those, or any of the other standard metrics out there for kind of measuring the success of your delivery chain in, in your processes? You know, that's kind of like, you know, trying to do rocket science before you're, uh, you have a good uh, flight system set up. Right? First, you have to make sure that you know what your goals are. Right, like what? What are the end metrics that you care about? Right, like that's you know the KPIs, like the key performance indicators. What do I actually care about? Right, so I, I might care about any of those things or other things, and then once you know what you care about, you can think, oh, what what things can impact them, and then you kind of go down the causality chain and figure out where you have a place to to change stuff. But I feel like, you know, we're still as an industry not at the level where this is the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that most places could tend to be more explicit about what you're actually trying to achieve. And this is why I advocate that, right? If everybody agreed that we have to be very specific about what we're trying to achieve, then all the great solutions for figuring that out. But I feel like this is like the critical part that like the industry still haven't gotten there. Hopefully, like, eventually we'll get there and then we'll have all these interesting problems to, to solve. Yeah, it's a never-ending journey. But you know, one thing that resonated with me, what you just said, and, and a lot of a lot of companies do, you hear about use metrics and red metrics. And one of the things with these metrics is don't pick the metric expecting that to answer your question or dictate your goals. I think what what you're saying is define your goals and then find the metric that happens to match yeah. that, which is which is absolutely you know, that makes a lot of sense. Looking under Looking under the lamppost is it's all this you know human beings have uh, have existed right to to say this is easy to measure, therefore we should optimize that right. This GDP is easy, like you know not, not just right. like in soccer, right? <laughs> GDP is very easy to measure, but you can do so many things that like harm like a lot of people, but improve GDP a lot. And clearly, we don't want to do that, right? It's like GDP should be something that helps us help people, but like we shouldn't care about GDP in and of itself. And, and this is an example very divorced from software engineering, just to show that you know this example doesn't even need computers, you know, to 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 have effect to have bad effect on people, right? If you optimize for latency, then just you know we turn everything as five or threes, right? That's super fast, and. It, it sounds almost like a joke, except you eventually find out that if you incentivize people, they will do uh, whatever it is that you incentivize them to do. I love. I always love when I talk to somebody and they say something that I believe in a better way, because <laughs> then I get to codify some of my opinions in a more coherent way. Hell, that's how I do everything. I just, I just always, always learn from people, right? <laughs> um. So now I want to, I haven't done my industry terminology game, and I think it's an appropriate time to do it because you've thrown two terms out there and I want to throw two more at you. I'm just getting your read on the terminology. First thing is because we were talking about resilience and you're in the, the role of um, SRE, chaos engineering. 
I am a huge fan. Currently, like one of my, my hobby projects is to literally like say, here's almost every retrospective. Like here's if we use chaos engineering, this problem wouldn't have happened because we have found it earlier. I think it's a, such a, you know, kind of important practice to, to put all these things in. So um, I, I guess, you know, when I was in Facebook, I, I was in the same team and kind of like, you know, two desks over from the people who worked on like the Facebook chaos stuff, um, which was called Eris, the goddess of chaos. I, I, I saw what they were doing and like, so, so one of the cool things they had was like, you know, we're going to do chaos, but we're going to do chaos during business hours because that's, you know, equally, it, it gives you the same amount of data about how resilient you are to all these chaotic things, but it gives you the, the data in a time, you know, in place of your choosing, right? You know, like not doing code freezes, you know, doing, you know, eight to four Pacific time or wherever you're located. I feel like chaos engineering is such a, a, an important thing. You know, like it's definitely an uphill battle to kind of make it more popular in the industry. And I, I feel like, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how SRE is part of our job is to educate people. I think this is a really important educational campaign. Cool. Yeah, I like it. And you're right. It's uphill battle just simply because of the word chaos, I think. Because actually, well, and, and, opinion... and because, you know, like, even if you remove the word, right, you're like, yeah, I'm going like, to, you know, introduce errors into our services. How about that? <laughs> Right. I think the education point is that right. people have a hard time ex accepting the fact that bad things are going to happen no yep. matter what. <laughs> yeah, and yep. and they just want to believe that, oh, this time we got it. Nothing bad's going to happen. You know, like, I, I guess recently, like, I, I kind of uh, um, gotten into, like, some uh, martial arts stuff. And, you know, in, in the martial arts world, they, they, they literally have a word for that. It's called pressure testing you should pressure test the technique. And that means they're trying to do the technique and they tell the person, okay, the first time I'm doing the technique, don't resist me at all. Let me just figure out the details. But then once I figure out the details, try to like, you know, resist me, try to like prevent me from completing the technique. This way I understand if I'm doing it right or if it is useful at all, right? And, and this is what we want to do, right? Like I think of it as pressure testing for our stuff, right? For the same reason that right. you only learn how to, how to fight Right. If when you practice, you have some pressure tester, like you have someone trying to prevent you from doing the right thing so that you learn how to overcome it. Right. You don't want the first time that it happens uh, to be when it's a, in a fight for your life. And the same thing. Right. You don't want the first time that errors occur uh, is, is in, in like, you know, at 4 a.m. when you have no idea how to deal with them. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't challenge your system, there, there's no uh, no way to know what you can improve. All right. So the next term. AI ops. I, I if, have very you know if you're a listener of the podcast, <laughs> you know how many times I've used this term when I've played this game. I think it's just about every time. And the reactions are always fantastic. And, and another source of validation. I'm glad I gave a good emotional response. Uh, so so I, I guess you know, even if you drop the word ops here, I have very, very complicated feelings about the word AI, it means everything to everybody. There's like three senses that, that people use AI, right? So one is um, a buzzword around the tool that was already existed, right? So in, in Prometheus, it's literally just like a function. I forgot 
at its name that basically does kind of like a pretty simple kind of prediction machine learning thing that it's like, you know, pretty cheap computationally. And, you know, we'll, we'll give you a good indicator so that you can say if like, you know, your, your metric is, you know, kind of out of expected bounds. And you could call it AI if you want, right? I, I could definitely like, you know, if I was, if Prometheus was not an open source project, right? And, and, you know, like I was trying to come up with a good marketing tool. Definitely let's slap the word AI ops there because it does AI, right? So, so marketing around a very reason, like it, it's a very reasonable thing to do. Like, you know, it's not always appropriate, but it's a good function, right? There's a reason Prometheus added it. It's a good thing, but, you know, slap the word AI on it, 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 it markets better, right? So there's a different sense in like, you know, there, are, there is kind of like, you know, kind of like the modern kind of AI, like, you know, deep learning, machine learning, and, it's sometimes appropriate for specific things and it's sometimes inappropriate, right? Like as, as a software industry, right? Not even as DevOps, right? We still are trying to understand exactly where the limits of AI are. Sometimes when you have people who don't understand that in real life, you get, uh, um, and, and this is not funny, right? This is extremely uh, real and tragic, right? You get Uber literally smashing into a person. Basically the worst, imagine, you know, like, happening as the result of a software failure, right? Like uh, killing a human being, right? Uh, because these people did not understand what are the kind of boundary conditions of AI, where, where it's appropriate to be used and where it's appropriate to be tested. And uh, of course, many of us are not in a position that stuff can kill people, but it's still, you know, like if you misuse AI, uh, you can do a lot of, you know, harm to yourself and others. It's it's a powerful tool, and you should be very careful, right? And the last thing that people use like the word AI for, what what some people are more specifically called AGI, artificial general intelligence, right? Which is like you know how can we get uh, human intelligence? And and there it's like um, obviously like still far in the future, and like you know clearly nothing will actually nothing will actually do real AI ops, and that like you can just take the human out of the loops and do and do just you know operation with a machine. For the same reason, we don't have uh, SWAI, right? We don't expect AI to write software, right? Like, why do you think that, you know, like we talked earlier about like how a DevOps is not a failed software engineer, right? It's just a different specialty, right? If you don't expect software engineers to be completely replaced by AI, you shouldn't expect ops engineer to be completely replaced by AI. Probably will be replaced by AI around the same time that like, you know, uh, software engineers and, and, you know, novelists and all these like, you know, really very subtle things to define um, are replaced. So, I feel it has like um, a lot of meanings to a lot of people. Uh, if it's used as a marketing term, I don't know, probably okay, I'm not in marketing. If it's used to like actually do some deep learning, machine learning, make sure you really, really understand the boundary condition, the failure, um, the, the kind of failure that you should expect and make sure that you have accounted for them. And if you're hoping that you can just uh, save tons of money, uh, by firing all your SREs and, and putting like an overload AI in their place. When that happens, we'll have much bigger problems as, as a society, not even as a software industry. I, I love your I love your response, but it's the latter that that the the disappointment or the expectations created around the term is the part that that freaks me out the most. So well this is great. Thank you for joining me to close it out. I just want to know what you're most excited about in, well, besides it not being 2020 anymore, but um, technical wise, what you're most excited uh, about in 2021? A few things. Um, I'm I'm working on a, um, a class about uh, unit testing in Python. 
which I think is super important. And especially for like uh, uh, site reliability engineers, uh, which kind of frequently like gave a lot of, uh, to be very frank and, and like, you know, to criticize like, you know, our own industry, right? Like site reliability engineers have classically like gave a lot of really poor excuses why they don't write enough tests. So I'm very uh, uh, excited about, um, uh, you know, kind of recording and writing the materials for this class and then putting it out. And I hope that everybody can use it, but I especially say if if you're a site reliability engineer and, and you use Python, uh, use any language, use unit tests. Uh, if you use Python, of course, use, you know, Python unit tests. I'm, I'm very happy to, you know, kind of be teaching people how to do that better. <laughs>